Our scripture reading this morning is taken from Romans chapter 8 and verses 31 to 39 as we conclude our series of this amazing and assuring chapter. This chapter that's filled with words of assurance to the Christian. So Romans 8, I'm actually going to begin reading in verse 28. So we'll look back a little ways, verse 28 and reading through the end. The Apostle Paul writes, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. My friends, in this life, in this life that's often filled with scary opposition, painful hardship, and personal failure, we, the people of God, stand daily in need of assurance. Assurance that God is for us and that God is with us. Assurance that He's at work for our good. And most of all, assurance that God loves us, us, with an unbreakable love. But how do we gain this assurance? Well, in this chapter, Paul's been showing us the way. He begins with the resounding and assuring statement that there is now, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Assurance that we won't be condemned and cast away is found not in ourselves, but in Christ. Only in Christ are we freed from the guilt of sin and the judgment, the condemnation of death. But that raises another question, a question Paul thoroughly addresses in this chapter. How do we get into Christ? Well, only by the Holy Spirit. For it's the Spirit who draws us to Christ. It's the Spirit who not only gives us an intellectual understanding of the person and work of Christ, but who also gives us an affection for Christ. 
It's the Spirit who, enabling us to believe in Christ, actually unites us to Christ so that all the benefits of His life, death, resurrection, present reign, and future return become ours. It's the Spirit who makes us alive with Christ, who leads us in the way of Christ, and who helps us in our weakness to depend on Christ. For presently, God the Spirit groans in our groaning hearts. He groans in prayer that God the Father will use all things, even painful and perplexing things, for our ultimate good. The good not of our mere physical comfort or even our psychological happiness, but the good of our being conformed to the image of Jesus. And because this is God's eternal purpose for us, for our lives, it will be accomplished. And because this is so, how should we respond? That's really what Paul's asking with his first question, which is really his summary question in verse 31. What shall we say to these things? What things? Well, all the things Paul said in verses 28 to 30. Verses where where we hear a, a confident Conviction. Paul declares his one confident conviction, and then he goes on to state five unalterable affirmations. What's the confident conviction? Well, it's that we know, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. You know, as Christians, we live in the tension between knowing and not knowing. For example, in verse 26, Paul said there will be times in our lives, painful and perplexing times, when we Christians won't even know how to pray. And yet, even in those times of unknowing prayer, we still know something profound. We know that our God is always at work. And that He's always at work for our good. He's at work accomplishing His purpose of forming and fashioning us into the human beings He always had in mind. Humans who look like and live like His Son, the Lord Jesus. And in order to accomplish His purpose, God uses not just some things, but all things, even the hard things. For there's nothing and no one who can hinder God's purpose. There's nothing He's not using in this time, in our lives, to conform us to the image of Christ. And because our God is sovereign, His counsel shall stand and His purpose will be accomplished. And Paul says we know this. We know this because we hear this in God's Word, we see this in God's Son, and we actually experience it by God the Holy Spirit. Now, this doesn't mean that everything will always make sense to us, that we'll always understand and know how God is working all things together for our good. Yet, yet we can be confident that He is because of who He is, because He's sovereignly good and faithful. This is Paul's confident declaration that for those who love God, God is working all things together for their good. And having declared this conviction, Paul then goes on to state five unalterable affirmations. Affirmations that have been historically referred to as the golden chain. 
And it's the change of five, chain of five active verbs, verbs that describe what God has done for those who belong to Christ. How God in sheer grace has foreknown, predestined, called, justified, and glorified us. This is the unbreakable chain of our salvation, and it's a chain that stretches from eternity past to eternity future. For an eternity past, God foreknew us. And this doesn't mean he simply foresaw us. No, it means he foreloved us. Before time began, God set his undeserved love upon you. And in his forelove, he predestined you, meaning he set a destination for your life, which again is that you would be conformed to the image of his son so that his son might stand at the head of a large, multi-ethnic, universal family so that Christ might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And because God foreknew you and predestined you, he then in time called you. And he did so through the gospel. And by the Spirit, you responded to the gospel in faith, with a faith that in turn began to love the one who first loved you. And in believing the gospel, you were justified. You were declared legally righteous before God not with the righteousness of your own, but with Christ's righteousness that's been credited to you. In belonging to Christ, you've been fully forgiven and fully accepted by God. And because you have, you can be sure that one day you will be glorified in both body and soul. And Paul himself is so sure of our future glorification, which we haven't yet entered into, Yet Paul is so confident of this future glorification that he speaks of it as already accomplished. Our glorification is as good as done because it's ultimately rooted in God's foreknowledge and predestination of us. And because all this is so, Paul asks, what shall we say to these things? If these things are so, All that he said in verses 28 to 30, if this is true, what should our attitude be? What should our attitude be in light of this one confident conviction and these five unalterable affirmations? Well, notice that Paul, in answering his summary question, goes on to ask a series of more questions. Five questions, to be exact. Verse 31, if God is for us, Who can be against us? Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Verse 33, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? That is against those whom he foreknew and predestined. Verse 34, who is to condemn? And then verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And to each of these questions, Paul expects the same answer. Because there is only one answer. No one and nothing. No one and nothing can hinder God's sovereign and eternal purpose for our lives. Now, in the time we have remaining, I want us to consider these five questions. 
These questions that are intended to grow us in celebratory confidence and assurance. So question number one, if God is for us, and he obviously is in light of everything Paul says in verses 28 to 30, if God is for us, then who can be against us? Well, the truth is in this present life, there's a whole host of opposition to the Christian. Opposition that's arrayed against us. We have adversaries. There's the unbelieving world that's opposed to Christ and his people. There's remaining sin that so easily entangles us. There's death, the final enemy that's yet to be fully destroyed. And there's the devil who, like a lion, prowls around seeking to devour us. We have a whole host of people, things, and forces that are against us. And left to ourselves, we can't withstand any of them. And that's why Paul doesn't generically ask, who is against us? No, he qualifies his question with, if God is for us, and again, he obviously is, then who can be against us? If the sovereign God is for us, the God who's purposed our salvation from eternity, then who or what can be against us? Who can withstand the sovereign purpose, His purpose for your life? Who can withstand the sovereign purpose of Almighty God? And there's only one answer. No one and nothing. When we're opposed, when we're attacked verbally, emotionally, or physically, then what we need to realize is that attack isn't just against us but it's against God himself who has bound up his glory with our good. And because God is for us, no one and nothing can ultimately prevail against us. We may be harmed and hurt, but we will never be destroyed because God is on our side. God is on our side. But how can we be personally assured How can you be personally assured that God is for you? Well, that brings us to question number two. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The central way we know, are assured that God is for us, well, it's not found in our personal feelings. It's not found in our material blessings. No, the central way, the only way we can know God is for us is the cross. Assurance is gained and grows only at the foot of the cross, where in faith we recognize what God the Father willingly gave up in order to graciously give us all things. For on the cross, the Father did not spare His own Son. No, He judged and crushed His Son so that we who by nature are enemies of God might be spared, so that we might escape the judgment we deserve for our rebellion against God. And in love for us and for His Father, the Son willingly put Himself in our sinful place. And in putting himself in our sinful place, Jesus received what every sinner deserves. 
and that is the holy wrath of God. The Father didn't spare Jesus because if He spared Him, He couldn't spare us. Atonement for sin must be made, and it was made in the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ. And here's Paul's logic. If God, in purposing our glory, gave His best gift, the gift of His only Son, then surely He'll provide for our needs in the present, and surely He'll give us all things in the future. If God was willing to give up His greatest treasure for us, to give up His own Son, to not spare Him on the cross, if He was willing to do this, then surely He'll give us all the lesser things that we need. That's Paul's logic. My friends, do you see what the Father has done for you? And if you do see it, your response shouldn't simply be, well, well, that's nice. No, your response should be, hallelujah. A thousand praises to God that He didn't spare Jesus so that He might spare me, me, a sinner. He gave up His very best gift so that we might be gifted with life, that we might gifted with, be gifted with what we need, and be gifted in eternity with all things. And when we see this, when we see what the Father has given up so that we might be brought in, We should sing out, hallelujah. Think of the old hymn. When I think that God, His Son not sparing, sent Him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, He bled and died to take away my sin. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art. Well, then comes the next two questions. And these two questions actually go together. Question three, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? And then question four, who is to condemn? And both these questions bring us into a court of law. And the logic of these questions is that no accusation can ever stick and no pronouncement of condemnation can ever succeed against the Christian. Why? Well, because in Christ, God has justified us. He's definitively declared that we're in the right before Him. And if we are in the right before God, the holy judge, who can accuse us of being in the wrong? Well, again, many can and do try. The devil accuses us constantly. Unbelievers accuse us because we no longer live for the world's pleasure. We no longer take our cues from the world and its ways, and hence we find ourselves out of step with the world and often accused by the world. And at the same time, our own consciences often accuse us because we still sin. But, says Paul, none of these accusations can stick because God Himself has personally pronounced us not guilty. This is why Paul can say to the church of Corinth in 1 Corinthians 4, but with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. He goes on to say, I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not acquitted because I'm not aware of anything against myself. 
because he obviously knew there were things against himself. He says, not acquitted for that reason. No, I'm acquitted because it's the Lord who judges me. The Lord who judges me not guilty in Christ. And you see, if we're not guilty before God, then we needn't fear condemnation, even when words of condemnation are hurled at us from within as well as from without. For there are times, as we're told in 1 John 3.20, that even our own hearts will condemn us. But, says John, God is greater than our hearts. And our great and gracious God has definitively written over our lives no condemnation. That is written over your life. No condemnation. And He's done this not because of anything you've done. He's done this solely because of Christ. Christ who died, who was raised, and who now sits at the right hand of God where He's personally interceding for us. If you belong to Jesus by faith, you can't be condemned because Christ was already condemned once for all on the cross. He was condemned when He died in our place. But He not only died, no, says Paul, more than that, He was raised. And in His resurrection, He proved that sin and death and condemnation have been defeated. And because he was raised, he's now positioned in the supreme place of authority. And in that place, what is he doing? What is he doing at this very moment? He's pleading our case. He's interceding for us. His blood, his resurrection, and his authority are all directed toward your good. We have a defender against all accusation, a divine defender. And we have a savior against all condemnation. Therefore, we don't have to fear condemnation, nor do we have to constantly defend ourselves against accusation like we normally feel like we have to. Because we have a defender. We have a defender against all accusation. We have a Savior against all condemnation. No, all we must do is entrust ourselves to Christ who died for us. More than that, who was raised for us, who now reigns over us, and who at this very moment is interceding for us and all because He loves us. And that leads us to the final question, the fifth question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ. And notice at this point, Paul gives us some possible challengers. He gives us a list of potential and formidable enemies that seem bent on separating us from the love of Christ. And Paul knew this list personally. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and sword. Paul knew outward opposition. Tribulation, distress, and persecution. He knew what it was to lack to go without food and clothing. He knew what it was to face the danger of death. And eventually, this danger would become a reality in his own beheading. And each of these things were truly painful and perplexing to Paul. And yet, in faith, he could still say that none of these things could separate him from the love of Christ. Paul's head would eventually be severed, but even that couldn't sever him from Christ. 
From Christ who in love first suffered and died for Paul and for all. For all whom God foreknew and predestined. And it's because of Christ. It's because of Christ that Paul knew that all tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and even the sword were not in vain. For in experiencing these things in his own life, Christ, who is God, transformed these things so that now in his sovereign hands, these things actually become the very instruments of our transformation in his image. And to bring this out, Paul quotes from Psalm 44. For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Suffering has always followed God's people. But at no point is this suffering pointless because it's for His sake. It's according to His purpose. It's for His glory, which again is always at work for your good. Put another way, Christ took up the cross, which is not a sign of defeat but of victory, that we too might take up the cross in our lives. And when we do this, it'll feel like we're being killed all the day long. It'll seem as if we're sheep being led to the slaughter. But but because Christ was slaughtered for us, we can never be truly slaughtered. For His slaughter on the cross has led to our salvation. Through His being slaughtered, He conquered for us. And it's in light of Christ's conquest on the cross that Paul can say in verse 37 definitively to what his own question, no. Can persecution, distress, tribulation, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword separate us from the love of Christ? No. Absolutely not. There is no way Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword can ever sever us from the love of Christ. Because Christ's love doesn't leave us a victim of these things. No, His love transforms us into conquerors of these things. Conquerors through Him who loved us. Nothing can separate us from the conquering love of Christ. His love that has made us, as Paul says, more than conquerors, super conquerors. You're not a superhero, you're a super conqueror in Christ who conquered on our behalf. In Christ, nothing can or ultimately will undo us or prevail against us. No one and no thing can because we're with Him. You see how this works? When these things come against us, what we have to keep in mind, because we know it, is that we're with Him. We're with Jesus, who died, was raised, who now sits at the right hand of God the Father, and who is interceding for us, and is using all things at His disposal to accomplish God's eternal purpose for our lives. We're with the conquering King, whose love for you is stronger than death itself. And as Paul pondered this this conquering love of Christ, 
encourages us to ponder it as well, he could then climactically and confidently say, I am sure. I am sure that nothing we presently experience, neither the calamity of death nor the vagaries of life, nothing in the supernatural realm, neither angels nor rulers, nothing in time, whether things present or things to come, nothing in the political realm, no earthly powers, and nothing in space, neither height nor depth, no, absolutely nothing in all creation, nothing in the entire cosmos can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us from the love God's had for us from all of eternity. Nothing can separate us from the love God displayed on the cross perfectly. Nothing can separate us from the love God's poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit graciously. Nothing can separate us from the love by which God is even now working all things together for our good powerfully. And nothing can separate us from the love of God which will one day raise us gloriously to share in the glory of Christ. My friends, we stand daily in need of this confident assurance Assurance of God's conquering love for us in Christ and gifted to us in the Spirit. We need this assurance because we live in an insecure and unstable world. Daily we hear of political turmoil, racial division, and social unrest. Daily we're confronted with economic uncertainty and ethical impurity. Daily we experience our own sin. And daily we're aware of our own weakness, that we're prone to illness, disease, old age, and eventually death. Daily we feel a sense of loss. Insecurity and instability and suffering surround us. And our God doesn't promise that we'll escape these things. No, He promises victory through these things. He doesn't guarantee us immunity. Rather, he guarantees that no matter what we face now, we're headed to glory. And the only way we can be sure and certain of this is by resting in God's Christ-shaped, Spirit-given love, his love that has conquered. And because his love has conquered, we needn't fear when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And when we feel as if we're sheep led to the slaughter, even then we can trust our shepherd whose eternal and inseparable love will follow us all the days of our lives. Therefore, my friends, look to him. Lean on him. Love him who first loved you with a love that continually daily, moment by moment declares no condemnation and no separation. Let us be a confident people, not in ourselves, not in our circumstances, but in Christ, and His cross, His resurrection, His present reign, and because even now He is for us and interceding on our behalf. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you that by the power of your Holy Spirit, 
you led the Apostle Paul to write these words, that these are now our words, words that you have spoken to us who are in Christ. Help us to cling to them, to daily relish them, to go back to them again and again, to hide them in our hearts, bury them in our minds, that they might continue to blossom the fruit of assurance in our lives. For Jesus' sake, amen.